Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the new books and ideas podcast from American Purpose. Check out our website, AmericanPurpose.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletters, find details of how to register for our forthcoming Zoom events, and read comment and analysis on the stories of the day. Coming up on the show, Ian Baruma, former editor of the New York Review of Books and my colleague at Bard College on his new book, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR, to Trump and Brexit. Uh, Ian, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the new book. Churchill is in the title and you start with a lovely story about seeing him at the theatre when you were a child. That clearly made quite the impression on you. Yes, it wasn't so much him because I I, I can't really remember seeing his face very clearly, nor was I old enough to really appreciate who he was? But um, I remember the reaction of the adults around me, which was sort of adulation. I mean, my grandparents, in my memory, they may not have been quite like that, sort of jumping up and down with enthusiasm as he made the V sign. Um, so it was that it was the reaction of the adults that that left an indelible memory. And you've you've written before about the the way in which your grandparents felt a kind of genuine gratitude to Britain and the idea of being British. Yes, because they were children of immigrants. My great grandparents um, emigrated from Germany to to Britain in the late nineteenth century, <clears throat> and. Um, so my grandparents, and this is, has something to do with class, of course, but um, they were relatively privileged and, and went to university and all that. And so uh, they were very assimilated and, and felt very British, uh, in some ways more British than the British in the way that children of immigrants often do. But because they were also Jews, although not uh, religious, um, they felt very strongly that um, Churchill had saved their lives. And, um, and, and again, um, Britain having staved off uh, Hitler in 1940 um, uh, had saved their lives. And the sense that this is not just a British thing, but also a very specific Anglo-American thing too. Well, it's an Anglo-American thing, except that this kind of sentiment was very strong in um, Western European countries that had been occupied by the Nazis as well. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands, and I remember that we were given a day off at school to watch Churchill's funeral. And when Churchill visited The Hague in, in um, 1945 or maybe early 1946 and sort of held up his, his Homburg hat with his, uh, with his stick, um, people went wild. And that, that notion really um, lasted for quite a long time, that not only Britain, but the United States and Canada, um, that these were the sort of symbols of liberation, of openness, of democracy, and so on. Yeah, I suppose in th- that's what I meant, that, the, that your parents had this sense that this was not just the British who had kind of done this, this great thing in, in fighting and seeing off Nazism, but it was also the Americans too. And you, you talk in the book, again, another nice story at, at, towards the beginning, about your own reaction to watching films like The Longest Day, for example, about the D-Day landings. Yes, I mean, I'm still of the generation. I, I grew up very much in the shadow of World War II since I was born at the end of 1951. So it wasn't long after the end of the war. And I'm probably one of the last 
generations that can still get a little teary-eyed watching John Wayne sort of wade through the surf of, of, of Normandy. Uh, and um, uh, Robert Mitchum and uh, half the Hollywood stars and British stars were in that movie and half of them had actually been in the war. I mean, you you mentioned the reaction to Churchill in Western Europe, um, but he's also exercised this incredible uh, influence over the American imagination too. Why, Why do you think that is? I think perhaps even more so than over the... Um, imagination in Britain and in Europe. Um, I think because partly Churchill always was more popular um, in the United States than uh, he was um, uh, in Britain even. And certainly, I mean, after the war. And I think um, one of the reasons is that he made a lot of being half American, but he also played up to a, a, a self-image that's very strong in America of um, American destiny, the American mission to fight for democracy and freedom all over the world. The, he was the sort of the bulldog face of that self-image, um, which after the war, because the United States was so much more powerful than, than Britain, um, played more of a role in American politics than it did in, in British politics, which as we know, sort of hovered between um, being playing a bigger role in Europe or um, staying closer to the United States and, and losing its empire and so on. So uh, Churchill became the American face as much as it did the British one. This book is um, very much about the Anglo-American relationship, sometimes uh, referred to as the special relationship, sometimes with with, uh, the S and the R in lowercase, sometimes in uppercase, Um, that that there's a sense that it begins in many ways with uh, Churchill. But of course, ironically, as you point out in the book, the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt uh, during the war, even that has an element of myth about it, because it really is not... uh, what it kind of later uh, kind of appears to be, not least in the way that it's presented by Churchill. No, Churchill sentimentalised it. Um, Roosevelt didn't. And um, when, when they first met, uh, long before the war, I think it was in, in, during the First World War even, um, a meeting that Churchill didn't remember, but Roosevelt remembered vividly, uh, Roosevelt took a great dislike to Churchill and thought he was a typical English snob. Um, and uh, Roosevelt had no sentimental feelings about the British Empire or anything, many of the things Churchill stood for, but it was a very important relationship in um, creating a united front against um, Hitler's Germany and, and Japan. And so it was a relationship born out of necessity, um, which one side, Churchill's side, sentimentalized, or at least Churchill himself. I don't think everybody around Churchill was particularly keen on the Americans, and there was a lot of rivalry. Um, but um, it was a necessary relationship. And that beca- and, and after the war, it sort of went through phases that people thought it was still very necessary and other um, periods that people thought it, it was over, overstated. I mean, it's it's one of the things that uh, I always think about Churchill, that we forget that a lot of the sentimentality was actually a realism, that he manipulated language, used the, the kith and kin idea to ensnare the Americans uh, into, the, into the war effort. Um, do, do you think that, I mean, how important is language in this relationship, do you think? 
Well, extremely important because uh, for Churchill, I think language was really his main weapon. In 1940, um, Britain was not really strong enough militarily to overcome Nazi Germany, but uh, it was Churchill's words that boosted the morale and that, that, that sort of kept up the fighting spirit and all that. Um, that was enormously important and also in... Um, um, influencing American public opinion. But people forget that American public opinion uh, still in 1941 uh, was opposed to um, uh, joining uh, the Allies in the war against Germany. It was, really, it was only because of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the subsequent um, uh, declaration of war by Hitler that uh, the United States um, entered the war uh, completely. I mean, it's amazing what happens after the war as well, these Anglo-American institutions that in many ways create the, po the post-war world, Bretton Woods, the IMF, NATO, and, uh, and so on. Um, what kind of uh, influence do you think that the kind of language that you were talking about there has in laying the foundations for these really very real political uh, ideas? Well, I don't think that the language of kith and kin and, and, and Milton's poetry and uh, Jerusalem and all that kind of thing had much of an effect on that. I think w what is true is that the Atlantic Charter, drawn up by Churchill and Roosevelt in, in uh, 1941, um, was very important. And the words of the Charter about stressing internationalism, um, economic cooperation, and so on and so forth. It was really a blueprint of what the post-fascist order, to just to call it that, uh, in the world would have to look like. And so um, I don't think that the Americans, who were, of course, the main architects of, of the post-war order, were driven by any kind of sentimental attachment to Anglo-Saxonism. I think it was a very Real, it, it was an, an attempt to build, rebuild the world in a way that would make World War Three uh, impossible. What about the uh, the personal relationships uh, in the post-war period? I mean, obviously, we have some really very close relationships like Macmillan and Kennedy, Macmillan and Eisenhower, Reagan and Thatcher, and then the, 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 the more difficult relationships like, for example, Heath and Nixon. How important is personal chemistry? Well, I think it can be important, um, but in the end, interests usually prevail. So um, even though, uh, well, take, take uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, um, I think there was an element of, of sentimentality there, of, of mutual admiration and so on. Um, but uh, what really pulled them together were, was a perception of shared interests. In the first place, in a shared economic view, um, of, uh, call it these days. It's called neoliberalism, um, and uh, the idea that Britain and America should stand firm against the Soviet Union. Um, I don't think that Margaret Thatcher rated Reagan all that highly. Um, certainly not as an intellect. I think she much enjoyed arguing with Gorbachev much more than, uh, you know, visiting um, Reagan and, and sort of beating him in his bomber jacket and all that. That really wasn't for her. Um, but it was a relationship very much built on, per on perceived mutual 
national interests. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the points that David Reynolds, uh, you you mention uh, in the book and, and kind of whose work you cite, um, he, he always makes the point that in some ways it's the nuclear relationship, the naval relationship, the intelligence relationship, that these are the things that really matter because even when the relation, the personal relationship is bad, um, that those things still carry on because they're institutional. Uh, when you were working on the book, how did you balance those kind of institutional things against the, 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 against the personal? Well, I'd, I'd, I won't say I neglected the institutional aspects of it, but I chose not to, to concentrate on those. I mean, there are very good books about those uh, those things. Um, and I chose really to, to focus on this idea of Anglo-American liberalism and, uh, and so on and, and how it fared in, in the world of, poli- of international politics. Um, so uh, there's a, 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 a greater stress on that, on the ideology of the Anglo-American relationship and the way it was exemplified by different figures who were in Downing Street or the White House than I did on the institutional aspects. However, I, I did write quite a lot, for example, about the nuclear issue because that played a huge role and was by no means straightforward. I don't think that the Americans... Um, were always particularly interested in Britain being a great nuclear power. Um, And in Britain itself, it was a contentious issue as well. I mean, arguably, the British governments over time paid far too much money uh, to remain a great nuclear power when they really should have spent it much more on, on conventional arms. But in the end, it's it's complicated also because you can't leave the European countries out of the frame. And... Uh, at various periods, it was the French and the Germans who wanted, or the Germans in particular, who wanted the British to stick to their nuclear um, uh, arms because um, uh, they wanted a European um, nuclear force and they don't, didn't just want the French to have it. And, um, and the Germans certainly were not going to have it at all. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. As I was reading the the book, I, I was reflecting on the fact that I mean, you're very interested in this idea about the Britain looking to Europe and looking to America, and there aren't easy answers, are there? Because sometimes figures like Macmillan are both pro-American but also want to take Britain into the new European economic community. Blair, Tony Blair, is very pro-American, but he's also very pro-European. Um, how do you disentangle? that relationship that Britain has looking to the United States and looking to Europe? Well, again, it depended on the period, it depended on the individuals. I mean, one of the ironies is that the the British leaders of the wartime generation, like Anthony Eden and and Harold Macmillan, um, who came out of the war certainly feeling, uh, having a strong sense of of British superiority. And, you know, Britain stood alone in 1940. Of course, it didn't really stand alone, but it had a huge empire and so on. But nonetheless, the, the myth was very strong. And so for them, it was very difficult to see Britain as just another European power that should muck in with the rest and build common common institutions. On the other hand, culturally, they were much more steeped in European culture than most prime ministers who came later, like Harold Wilson and so on. They spoke, usually spoke good French, um, were very well versed in European literature and so on and so forth. 
but um, I think this ambivalence um, was on the one hand wanting to continue the glory of having won the war and, 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 and you know, 1945 and all that by sticking very closely to America. Uh, also the idea that by doing so, Britain would still be at the head table and be a great power. Uh, at the same time, realizing that it was in the national interest not to be isolated from Europe and to be part of the building of European institutions and not to be left behind. And so I think there was always that, that back and forth I mean, I, I guess it worked both ways, didn't it? I mean, the, the the European Union came into effect in 1958. Britain applied to join a couple of years afterwards. And uh, the EU, led by de Gaulle, said no, and then said no again in the in the later 60s. So it was only Britain only joined in the in the early 70s, but not through its own fault. That is true, but that was very much a question of de Gaulle. I mean, de Gaulle uh, was full of resentments, um, even though Churchill had been ex extremely helpful to him in, uh, during the war. But um, de Gaulle really wanted France to um, lead Europe. It wasn't the EU yet, of course, it was the, still the, the EEC, and didn't want Britain and by extension um, America to have too much influence. But the other countries in Europe, uh, especially the smaller countries, um, including my native country, were always desperate to have uh, Britain join and uh, because they didn't want to be uh, in a Franco-German Europe. They, they wanted that Atlanticist um, side of, 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 of European politics. They very much wanted Britain to be part of it. Um, and I think one of the things about Bre Brexit is that it was deeply uh, regretted by um, uh, the Dutch and, and, and others who now are back in a Franco-German Europe. Yeah, you make it uh, very clear in the book that you were opposed to Brexit. How, how do you see Brexit fitting into this idea of uh, the Anglo-American relationship and the, the British relationship with Europe? Well, one of the reasons I regret I, I was um, uh, so opposed to Brexit um, was that I think the EU, with all its flaws, and it's and 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 it is flawed, um, and it's still an experiment, which is of course the word is often applied to the United States as well, um, but it hasn't found its final form. But Britain and France and Germany held each other in a in actually in a kind of perfect balance, and French statism, uh, German federalism. Uh, continental idealism and so on were, were finely balanced against a sort of British scepticism about going too far into the federal direction or the statist direction and so on. And um, it, it kind of worked. And the irony is, one of the ironies of history is that the British really got pretty much what they wanted on the eve of Brexit. And so there was that uh, uh, side that I found very painful. But if we look further to the future, I think, and the Anglo-American relationship, I think it'll be, it'll make both Britain and the Anglo-American relationship much less relevant. Because again, I think countries look to their national interests in the end, and whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anybody else, uh, the US has much more um, interest uh, invested in the EU, which is a huge economic power, than it does in um, uh, a separate 
Britain. I mean, the, the, the American presidents may continue to enjoy going for horse rides with the Queen in Windsor Castle and so on, but apart from that, Britain will become less important than it had been as one of the, the leading powers uh, in the EU and, and playing the role that the US always wanted Britain to play since the war as the kind of bridge between continental Europe and the United States. Well, it, 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 it's not well placed anymore to play that role. Although it still has cards to play, doesn't it? As the, I mean, it's the fifth or so, depending which metrics you use, the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. It still has that that uh, permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It's one of the few, I think, the only major power to pay two percent of GDP to NATO. There's the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. That I mean, an American president of uh, either stripe um, was uh, kind of going forward, not just kind of Joe Biden, but in the future, is always going to have to use those things to to shape the world. I, I imagine. Yes, I, do, I I I wouldn't dismiss Britain, and of course it's still a, a major country, and 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 to be taken seriously. I just think it'll be much less major and much less serious to. Um, U.S. presidents um, than it was when it was um, played a, a leading role in the EU, simply because the EU is a much more powerful entity than um, uh, a Britain outside the EU. Now, in the long, long term, who knows what will happen? I mean, maybe the EU won't survive, but in the foreseeable future, I think Britain, although, as you say, not to be dismissed, but will be a, a more provincial uh, country. I mean, it's interesting that, as you said, this book is about the idea of the special relationship, of the Anglo-American relationship. Why do you think that that idea has always held so much more, gri- much greater grip on the British imagination than the idea of Europe has? Well, again, I think that... Uh, it depends, like so many things, on class. I think in, in Britain, certainly you know, in the last 300 years or so, um, the upper class was always much more, the arist- aristocracy in particular, was always much closer, say, to France and to French culture and so on than um, people who were, uh, who were lower down the pecking order. And... Um, so I don't think you can say that, that, that there is such a thing as the British imagination, but but you're right. Uh, I think there is more, uh, among a lot of people, more sense of kinship with American culture uh, because of the language, because of the influence of Hollywood uh, and so on. But, of course, the same thing can be said about the rest of Europe. I mean, that, that m- most people in Europe um, are much closer to American popular culture than they are to other cultures in Europe. I mean, when, uh, you know, um, it, it, books written, read in translation in France or Italy or Holland would be more likely to be books written by Americans than they are uh, to be books written by Germans or Italians. And so, you know, it's just this America has been looming very large everywhere. And it does seem to be the system as well. I mean, if, if we think about the just the, the way in which people have been transfixed by the American political process over the last four years and specifically during the election, you know, the, the European Union never seems to be able to define itself in a way 
that gives it a kind of popular legitimacy, and that's not just in the UK. I think that's throughout uh, throughout Europe. What? Why is that? Do you think? Well, first of all, it's not a country, um, uh, so there isn't a, a common conversation in the, in, the, in the way you have in countries where certain TV personalities who are vastly famous within a certain country and everybody knows about them and talks about what they've said and so on, gossips about them. Uh, there is no nothing like that in, on a European dimension. These things are still national. And so I think that's that's one thing. And all attempts to create some kind of common culture on the whole haven't gone very far because I remember that one of the great sort of proponents of um, European uni unity, the um, Belgian uh, politician Guy Verhofstadt um, once said when he sits back in his library and listens to a piece by Mozart and drinks a burgundy wine and reads poetry by Goethe, he feels like a real European. Well, he and, and a few thousand other people, but that's not something that resonates very deeply. So uh, in the end, I think if uh, Europe is going to be institutionally going to become closer and closer as an entity. Uh, it'll be, as is so often true in history, that, that dictated by interests, institutions are built and the sort of uh, the, the cultural and sentimental side will eventually follow that. Uh, what about the Anglo-American relationship today? I mean, it's it's about to go through a transition. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are often paired together, but they're very different characters in many ways, aren't they? They're different characters, but they came to power under rather similar circumstances in the sense that they, they both exploited similar discontents in their different societies and this, this sort of anti-elitist uh, popular sense of being left behind, not listened to, angry, and so on. And, and both of them knew how to um, play on those feelings and use them. So they, they, there are great similarities. Yes, they are very different people, uh, that's for sure. Um, but I think a lot of uh, Trump's um, support of Boris Johnson and Brexit and so on was rhetorical, it was mischief-making, it was his way of expressing his loathing of the EU uh, and, and so on. Whether it would have had real s substance is another thing. I mean, even if he'd been re-elected, the chances of Britain getting a fantastic trade deal with the United States in the way that Brexiteers hope I think would still be rather remote and under Biden, of course, even more so. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Joe Biden there. We had uh, Edmund Fawcett on the show last week talking about conservatism. And one of the points that um, came up there was this sense that under European, un, under any European definition, Joe Biden would probably be a centre-right politician. So do you think that that means that the relationship between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden might actually turn out to be a closer and more natural one than the one between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump? Well, that depends a bit on where Boris Johnson and the Tory party go. Um, because the, the sort of Nigel Farage side of the Tories um, um, is not traditionally conservative. They're like, like Trump and the Trumpists, they, they tend to be wreckers and, and more radical. And in that sense, I think um, Edmund is quite right that Biden is a, is a conservative. I mean, he, he believes in the institutions as they exist. 
Um, he believes in, in preserving them, strengthening them, and so on and so forth, with a sort of, maybe uh, with some sort of progressive economic uh, policies as well. But he's a conservative in that he doesn't radically want to change society, which uh, the far right uh, does. And um, so I don't see Trump as a conservative, and I don't see the, the far right uh, in Britain um, as conservative either. And Boris Johnson has kind of played both sides. I don't think he's a man of deep beliefs. He's an opportunist. And he's played the Nigel Farage side, and he may end up playing a more truly conservative side, in which case, yes, there is room for um, greater cooperation. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the one of the themes of the of the book is the kind of hollowing out of this kind of center ground of the Atlantic Alliance. So, I mean, I guess my last question to you is that: uh, Do you feel, even over the last few weeks, kind of more hopeful about the future of the Atlantic Alliance that you've described uh, in the book? Yes, I do feel a little more hopeful because Biden is, is an internationalist. He will try to repair relations with America's natural allies in, in Europe. Um, uh, so everything, the whole atmosphere will be improved. But will it go back to the role that the United States played in the, in the, in the 20th century? That I don't think, because first of all, uh, it's not as powerful as it used to be. Um, the Trumpists haven't gone away. Um, uh, the, that isolationist tendency in America uh, that has always been there uh, will not go away either. Um, I think after four years of Trump, um, trust in the United States will have uh, been dented. Um, whatever Biden says, you don't know what's going to happen after Biden. Uh, the power of China is so much more important. And so, uh, yes, things will get better, but it won't. It would be a big mistake, I think, for, for Europeans to be lulled into a kind of sleep and say, oh, well, now Trump is gone, we can relax again. It'll be just the way it always has been and the United States will take care of our security and we can just sort of sit on our economic laurels. I don't, that, that would be a huge mistake. And this is very personal to you. I mean, you were you grew up in uh, in the Netherlands. You have very very close connections. Spent a lot of time in the UK. Uh, you're now teaching and resident uh, in the United States. So this world is your world. Well, I mean, it's it's more complicated than that because I've always felt that I was part of both worlds, and in some periods felt much closer since I live and write in English. Uh, and I was very much very close to my mother's family, um, felt closer to the uh, Anglosphere than I did to the continental European uh, world. But uh, paradoxically, uh, the longer I live in the United States, um, uh, and after Brexit in particular, the closer I've begun to feel again to the continental world. And so I'm reading more in French and German and so on. So the book is The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. That's written by my guest Ian Baruma and published by Penguin Press, price $27. Uh, but for now, Ian, congratulations again and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Uh, we will be back after Thanksgiving, so do join us again in two weeks. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>